The first reading this evening is going to be Isaiah chapter 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, all you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The second reading this evening is from the book of Revelations chapter 3. I'll be starting in verse 14 and finishing off the chapter. To the angel in the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. My name's Phil. Let me have my welcome to Ben's. It's lovely to have you here, especially if you're here for the first time. Let's turn to pray and ask God for his help as he speaks his words to us. Our Father God, please, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us minds that understand and work hard to, to listen for truth? Would you give us hearts that can recognize truth? And would you give us a humility that is willing to be corrected? Amen. Uh, when I was a trainee lawyer, you, uh, you sat with your boss in the same room and you had assessments every three months or so. You had six months with each boss and then you moved round. 
And the, the first six months are always a little bit of a nerve-wracking time as you kind of work out the difference between, no offense to the students here, but um, being a student and work, um, um, it's not that you're not working hard now, but just you wait. But uh, the, um, I, I mean it. Uh, anyway, the, you had these assessments, and the guy in the room next to me, the first um, round of, uh, of moves, Andy, had quite, you could say, quite a stern boss. And the first of his assessments with her didn't go particularly well. He told me about it afterwards. He looked like uh, he'd just been in combat. Um, he was uh, sat in the, in the corner of the room, sucking his thumb and uh, rocking backwards and forwards. And uh, so what happened? He said, she began by saying, you type too loudly. It annoys me. You have to stop. And it went downhill from there rapidly. And she basically just went through everything he did and showed how rubbish he was. And he got to the end, and he said, oh, is, is there anything I've done, any piece of work I've done for you that you think, okay, that, that was good, so that I can sort of build on that? And she just stared at him. Nothing. He was absolutely, <laughs> absolutely deflated. It's brutal when you receive feedback like that. And the truth is, Jesus writes this letter. You can imagine the church... Receiving a letter from Jesus, wow. And then you read this. And Jesus, I mean, can you imagine being gathered for the first time as the church at Laodicea when you, when you read the words that Jesus has dictated to, to John? Oh, I wonder what Jesus thinks of us. He chose to write to our, of all the churches, of, he chose seven and we're one of the churches that he wanted to write to. This is wonderful. What does he say? When I look at how you live, I want to spew. Oh, is there anything we're getting right? No. Why on earth is Jesus so hard? I mean, in one sense, spiritually, it's going through the seven letters has been like coming to church and, and just being baseball batted spiritually each week as you, you hear these horrendous criticisms, these damning indictments of Jesus' churches. All but two of them have been told, you really are failing badly. Why is Jesus so harsh? Well, we see the answer in chapter 3 and verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. That's what Jesus says. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. His rebukes and his discipline are both, they're not signs he doesn't love his people. They're signs he does and he cares enough to say hard things. He rebukes because negatively he knows what's at stake. Your eternal destiny, just as much as theirs, your eternal destiny as you sit there tonight is largely shaped by what you do now. This life, the choices you make will shape your eternal destiny. And so if Jesus sees you going in a dangerous direction, he's gonna shout at you like a a mother of a toddler who's run into the road because he loves you. And positively, positively he rebukes harshly because he doesn't want you to miss out on an eternal paradise that is going to be spectacularly wonderful. Uh, I'm not sure if you're sports fans, how many of you, but um, for those who are unaware, the Six Nations Rugby Championship has just finished. And although it pains me enormously to say this, it was won by Wales. And in large part, that was down to their rather inspirational captain, Alan Wynne-Jones. 
Actually, the, this story that did the rounds last week shows that, annoyingly, he's actually a really nice guy. So the, it's the final game of the championship. The team are utterly focused on winning the Grand Slam, facing Ireland in Cardiff. Everybody, all the players are absolutely in the zone. But Alan Wynne-Jones notices as they're belting out the national anthem that the little, little mascot nearest him is shivering in the cold. So he takes off his own jacket, wraps it round the little boy's shoulders and brings him in close. Oh, what a guy. Uh, still the Welsh captain, I can't like him that much. But, um, but if you watched the games, you would have seen this rather more often. Um, and that was how he spoke to his teammates uh, most of the time. He would just be bellowing in their face, come on, step up, step up, don't give in. It was just you know, frightening the life out of them. And he just bellowed and bellowed and bellowed for 80 minutes for five games. Why did he do it? Why did he keep shouting horrible things at his teammates? because he didn't want them to miss out on the joy of victory. And you look at this picture when they won. I don't see anybody in that picture saying, I wish he'd just let us play how we wanted. I don't care about winning or losing. I just like him to say nice things for once. No, they don't care anymore. It was so worth it. Being bullied and bellowed out was absolutely worth it to win the championship. And I doubt any of us has even the vaguest notion how mind-bogglingly glorious it will be when your bare feet feel the soil, the turf of the new creation under them. How amazing it will taste that first bite of the banquet that will begin eternal life as God welcomes you in. And in the meantime, Jesus is quite willing to say some very blunt, very brutal things to you and to me because he doesn't want you to miss out. Because he loves you. Now, as ever, we must remember that we are not the church at Laodicea in AD 90 or so. But according to verse 22, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus spoke to them, but he spoke to them for everybody. And so we're to hear his words, and if the cap fits, be willing to wear it. Okay, um, you've got an outline on the sheets. Let's work our way through. We'll start at verse 14 where the letter begins. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Each time the letter begins with an aspect of the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ from chapter 1, what gets picked up here? Truth and authority. Amen is the ultimate word of agreement. Confirmation, yes, that is absolutely right. Jesus is the ultimate amen, if you like. He needs no endorsement from anybody else, no VAR to check he's right. There's no appeal to his decisions. He is the truth. He is the faithful and true witness. And he has authority as well. He's the ruler of God's creation. implications are very clear. Ultimate truth doesn't rest in my heart or yours. Ultimate truth is found in Jesus' words. And so if you have a genuine longing for truth, then you will be willing to let Jesus' words correct and challenge you rather than listen to Jesus' words and then you decide which bits you'll accept. He is the ultimate amen. 
And the one whose words are true says to this church that he will spit out the lukewarm. It's a well-taught church, this, a very well-taught church. In Colossians 4, 6, we read that the apostle Paul wrote a letter to them and ensured that the letter he wrote to the Colossians, which we've lost the letters to the Laodiceans that Paul wrote, uh, but the letter to the Colossians was then passed on to them as well. So they had at least two letters from the Apostle Paul, and probably um, in time the other New Testament letters were passed on to them too. It's a very well-taught church. And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't condemn them for any heresy. They're doctrinally sound. The teaching is great at this church. But they are in danger of being spat out by God. And nothing is commended in this church. Instead, Jesus gets straight to the point. Verse 15. Things are too serious for messing around. Verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You're like a drink that's gone off. One swig and... That is disgusting. That's what Jesus thinks about this church. Now, historically-minded theologians get very, very excited by this letter to the Laodiceans uh, because there seems to be lots of links between the letter and the, the archi- what architects tell us about the history of Laodicea. So we know there was a famous eye hospital in Laodicea. There was definitely a thriving banking sector which made the town so rich that in AD 60, when it was devastated by an earthquake and they were offered imperial assistance, they said, we don't need any money from Rome. We'll pay for it ourselves. They're very rich. Uh, Their dyed black wool was exported all over Asia Minor. But most significantly, the town had no river or water supply, which you'd have thought was a good reason not to put a town there. But there we go. So instead, six miles away at Hierapolis, there are hot springs. Uh, Very limey hot water came out of the rocks at the hot springs there. And they built an aqueduct and brought it six miles across to Laodicea. Boiling hot when it came out at Hierapolis... By the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm, full of minerals, and tasted pretty grotty. And the church is as disgusting to Jesus as the water was to the town's residents. Now, hot water is lovely. A nice hot cup of tea on a cold day. Wonderful. Cold water, there's nothing more refreshing than it on earth. Uh, Iced tea on a summer's day is wonderful. See, the blank stairs, of course, you're Londonized. a flat white or an iced latte, wonderful. Either of the two will work, they're great. But no one orders tepid tea or tepid coffee. No one, oh, let me just wait for it to cool down to sort of body, te- oh, that's just disgusting when it's gone half cold. But that's what this church is like. You take a sip and ugh, you want to spit it out. Now remember, these are people Jesus loved enough that he died on a cross for them. But right now, their behavior makes him utterly sick. They're so lacking in any real commitment or conviction that he just wants to be done with them, be rid of them. It is very, very easily done to become lukewarm as a church or as individuals. Neither one thing nor the other. Not unbelievers, we'd say we trust in Jesus, but not wholeheartedly living for him either. Not really living like uh, my non-Christian friends and colleagues, but... Certainly not living the way the Bible says wholeheartedly that we should live. I wonder if any of us recognize this description. Too Christian to really enjoy the sins we keep slipping back into. But at the same time, too worldly to be enjoying our relationship with God. 
our faith is lukewarm, foot in both worlds, neither hot nor cold, no life, no zeal, no determination, no energy, no distinction, and certainly no joy or love. And the warning from Jesus is that he will not tolerate it. He will not tolerate it. He will eventually reject this lukewarm church and spit them out of his mouth. Secondly, we see Jesus will spit out the self-satisfied. Now, I think these verses, 17 to 18, uh, they develop the idea, but they also help us to understand why it is this church had got so just meh, lukewarm. Jesus said to the oppressed faithful church at Smyrna, back in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, but you are rich. Poor in the eyes of the world, rich in heaven. The very opposite of the church at Laodicea. Verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing, but you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This church has wealth and privilege. They're accepted by the culture around them. No one's persecuting this lot. They have everything that the rest of the citizens in Laodicea have. And on top of it all, they have Jesus, but he's just an add-on. He's the cherry on the cake, really, for them. Yeah, the church is full, the meetings are lively and uplifting, the budget's healthy, their, their non-Christian friends think that their faith is, is a good thing. But according to Jesus, the only good thing in this church is their view of themselves. And they're totally deluded in that. The question though is, why is it that being wealthy, as we read here, you say I am rich, but you do not realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Why is it being wealthy and accepted makes them spiritually so impoverished? Now, I think there are two reasons. The first is uh, the great danger. I guess we'd all know, the more I have, the less I recognize I need in any area. So the more I have financially, the less I recognize actually problems with my character. I feel self-sufficient. I feel good. I don't recognize need when I'm wealthy. And it's interesting, many people first start thinking about God, begin their spiritual journey at a time when life has been rocked. Now, the Bible's not true because life's difficult, but it's interesting, it's often we only think about it when life gets difficult. Uh, cancer has struck, or a loved one has died, or a career has, has hit the, the skids, a relationship has ended. There's a, there's a sort of hunger or an emptiness about life in general. When life is good, so often we just don't give God a second thought. It's the ultimate irony that uh, on the back of the dollar bill it says, in God we trust. Actually, for a $1 bill, there's no great irony, but the fact that it still says it on a $100 bill, now that's irony. Because the more we have, the less we recognize we need. Any need. We don't feel we need God. Now, planet Earth um, lies within the Milky Way galaxy. I've done my research on Google. Now, when you look out on a cloudless night, you're looking up. We're in the middle of the, the Milky Way, so you're probably looking out at about 100 billion stars, that silver strip across the middle of the sky. The light emitted by those stars is around 2 billion, 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 billion light bulbs. That's two with at least 36 zeros after it, something like that. But if you pop up the road to Piccadilly Circus, where uh, you see this display, that's a few tens of thousands of light bulbs worth of light. 
But it does not matter how clear the night is. If you stand near there, you cannot see a single star. The comparatively puny lights of those advertising things, telling us all the wonderful things we can buy, when that fills your view, it blinds you to the glory of billions upon billions upon billions of stars. And worldly wealth does the same to us. We lose sight of the glory and majesty of the true Son, Jesus Christ, when our eyes, our lives are just filled with good things. We're just consumed with careers and, uh, and holidays and clothes and, and entertainment and phones. And, and the light of those things just eclipses the glory of God. Confessionally, we, we probably remain Christian. We keep saying the right things. I trust in Jesus. We sing the songs, but functionally, we grow lukewarm because the lights that are closer to us just blind us to what is real. Our love grows cold. We end up feeling more moved by, invested in, and caring more about our careers and relationships. You know, honestly, we'd be more excited about getting on the housing ladder than a friend becoming a Christian. I, I just lives aren't really invested in the things of God anymore. That's the danger with wealth. It can, it can make us feel like we don't need God because it, it just gives us everything we want. It provides a light that is right here, drowns out the true God. But there's a second reason that being wealthy and accepted can be spiritually dangerous. Turn back with me to page 909 in your Bibles. Page 909 and the prophet Hosea, chapter 12, verse 8. Page 909. Condemning the northern kingdom of God's people. Hosea says this. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I've become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. You see the assumption? I'm blessed with wealth, so I must be living righteously. I must be innocent. Do you know how it is when life is hard, when things are going wrong at work, relationships, all those things, you're overdrawn, you find yourself thinking, why does God hate me? Even if you don't you know, even if you say it in a slightly more theological way, you feel inside, why does God hate me? My life sucks. Why does he hate me? But actually, of course, we know, often those God most approves of in the Bible are those with the hardest lives. Well, just as we, we think God must hate me when life is hard, we also assume the opposite. When life's going well, when the sun is shining on everything I do, we naturally just assume God must be happy with me. I mean, after all, he's blessing everything. And I think for myself, and I guess it's probably true for many of us, we're at our most resistant to being criticized by God's word or by Christian friends when life is going really well. Because we're comfortable and satisfied. And we just, well, the fact that life's going well shows me that God's happy with me. We delude ourselves that God has given me something as meaningless as earthly riches or popularity. That means he must approve of how I'm living. The Laodicean Christians were like that, and the truth was they made God sick. See, God can see past the, the sorted lives and the smiling faces. He can see down into the hearts. And he can see that as, as wonderful as the lives may be, as comfortable and happy as they may be, in their hearts there is 
very little of God and very much of the world. And so the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation reveals their true state. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. It's a devastating diagnosis that Jesus delivers to a church who thought they were doing well. But wonderfully, Jesus doesn't just criticize, he also offers a cure. And the cure is not a potion, it's a person. Jesus himself, he's not just the truth, he's also the life that you and I need. And he tells them this in verses 18 to 22, he says that he offers all we need. Verse 18, I wonder if you can hear the echo of that reading, the first reading we had from Isaiah 55 in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Now the emphasis here is not on buy as if you can't get into heaven unless you pay for it. It's only for the rich in heaven. Now the stress is on who do we turn to to get what we most want? It's the image of walking through a market and there's all the, all the people uh, shouting, buy from here, pound of pears, pound of pears. Everybody's shouting at you and flashing billboards, uh, advertising stuff you really, really need. And Jesus' voice rings out, I counsel you, buy from me. This is a market where, uh, I'm sure you've been to, to some of these places on holiday, where basically every stall has fake goods. Everything is fake. They're all trying to make a fast buck. And Jesus says, I have the genuine article. And what's more, I give it for free. Come to me. He offers gold refined by the fire. Here's a church that is rich and is hoarding earthly money. And he says, why would you want that? of no more value in heaven than monopoly money is in the real world here. Even if you don't lose your money in recession or bad investment, you certainly can't take it with you into eternal life. So seek pure gold, treasure in heaven, the treasure Jesus gives us as we serve him, riches that never run out and are eternally secure. He also offers white clothes to wear to cover your shameful nakedness. Now, white clothes in Revelation, they represent righteousness. It's, uh, the, the th- I mean, in, it's the thought of turning up on judgment day naked and, and God being able to see how awful our behavior is. And instead, Jesus clothes us in pure, clean robes so that we are pure and ready to pass through judgment. He says, Stop, stop thinking that because you have stuff down here, because people think well of you down here, that that means God thinks you're righteous. You know, you can be popular down here. It can be simply as crass as the clothes you wear make you popular or the attitudes you hold or the people you hang out with. But on judgment day, God can see past all of that. And he says, don't turn up spiritually naked and exposed on judgment day. Come to Jesus because when you trust in him, he will clothe you. All your shame will be covered. And you will not have to fear God's gaze. Salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Again, Jesus says, don't think you can see the truth because you share the opinions of those around you. Don't think that just because you laugh at what everybody else laughs at, you enjoy what everybody else enjoys, you approve of what they approve of, that that makes you wise and intelligent. 
it may mean it may mean that actually you're all as blind as each other. Instead, he says, come to God and he will open your eyes so that you can see the truth by his spirit revealed in his word. Do you see the point Jesus is making in verse 18? He says, all the things you really want, all the things you think you already have on earth, oh, I can offer you the true, eternal versions of them. I can offer what you really need, what you really want. And he gives them for free, wealth, security, acceptance, the verdict of God that you are approved, loved, valuable and worthy. All of those given for free. And so the answer is Jesus, to come to him, to look to him, to invest in him. Seek to know him better through his word. Don't allow yourself just to be dulled, just to grow lukewarm. Talk to one another about it. Spur one another on. Hang out with people who are living wholeheartedly for Jesus. There's two ways to do that. That's we can all up our game. And the second way is to read Christian biographies. Good biographies are great. It's basically the chance to hang out for a week or two, depending on how long it takes you to read them, with someone who is a sinner like you and me, but has lived wholeheartedly for Jesus. And it inspires us to, to not settle for a mediocre, half-hearted life. It inspires us to, to be more, to look for more from Jesus and to live for more in this life. They challenge us and keep us from living small lives. And so the letter concludes in verse 20. Uh, verse 19, those whom I love are rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Incredible images, two contrasting images of sitting. Firstly, Jesus says, look, the reason I am, I'm speaking like this to you, the reason I want to come to you is I want us to sit around the table at home, share food like you do with a good friend when you laugh and eat and drink and have a brilliant time. I want to sit with you. I want to get to know you. I want to share fellowship with you. But also he says, I want you to sit with me on a throne in heaven. It's extraordinary. The throne through which the universe is judged. And he says, come and join me up here on this throne and judge the universe. So there's your answer. Why is Jesus so harsh in these letters? Why, why, why does he speak so meanly, so brutally to the churches? Jesus speaks brutally to you and to me because he does not want you to stand in the criminal's dock condemned by him. He wants you to sit on the judge's throne, reigning with him. He doesn't want you to stand in the dock condemned by him. He wants you to sit on the throne, reigning with him. And he'll do anything to keep you from eternal condemnation. He died on a cross to pay for your sins. And now he shouts some brutal words to keep you from going back that way. He's knocking. He knocks through his word. If anyone hears my voice 
So if you hear his voice tonight, respond. It may be that you're hearing his voice for the first time. Perhaps you've been coming to church for a while. But you know it's time to, to move from being an interested observer to finally opening your life and allowing the Lord his rightful place. Trusting him wholly for forgiveness for your sins. Looking to him entirely for your eternal life. And taking the crown off your own head and putting it on his, living in obedience to him. If that's you, do it tonight. Do it tonight. And he says, he will come in and he will eat with you and you will reign with him. I guess for many more of us, we committed our lives to Jesus some time ago, but we know we've grown lukewarm. Perhaps it, it starts with just the quiet closing of various rooms in our lives. Not in there, please, Jesus. Because we're convinced that he's come to take what is precious to us. There are other things in the central room of our heart and Jesus is not welcome. He stands and knocks. It's not the pathetic knocking of someone who has no right and can't come in. He's the Lord, the King. But he wants you to open the door. And he wants to come in not to take, to ruin, to limit your life. He wants to bless, to bring fulfillment, forgiveness, and eternal life. He wants to provide what your soul most longs for. So don't keep the door closed. Open it to him tonight. Tonight, Jesus stands before all of us. Verse 22 tells us, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What he said to Laodicea, he speaks also tonight. He stands before you and he stands before me and he says, I knock. He wants to wake us from lukewarmness and lethargy. He wants to clean us from filth. He wants to save us from sin. He wants to revive us from our spiritual dullness and our deluded self-satisfaction. And he wants us to come and to reign with him. How will you respond? Let's pray. Our Father God, as we hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is knocking at our hearts. Father, where we have been lukewarm, where we have filled our hearts with, with so many other good things that the truth is we're just not moved by Jesus and eternal life anymore. We pray that we would repent, that we would open our heart to him again. We pray that we would stop living these half-hearted, lukewarm lives, neither one thing nor the other, and would commit ourselves wholly to living for him. We pray that we would be willing to give up the wrongful things that are keeping us from following him. And we would turn away from filling our lives with the good things that so often drown out his voice. Thank you that he has not come to ruin our lives, to take, but he has come to give 
And so we pray that we would know as we turn to him the joy of relationship as God comes to know us and sit with us and eat with us. And the joy of the hope that one day we have this glorious promise that we will reign with him. Amen.